Welcome back to the Nick Finzer Audio Experience. Today we are diving into an episode of Ask Nick. This is number 80. And in episode number 80, we're talking about what do you do after you record a record? So if you want to know what to do after you go into the studio, uh, we're going to talk about that today. How you deal with your ego getting in the way of your playing. That's a pretty deep question. So some deep thoughts on that and how do you develop your own sound so that's a common question uh, that young improvisers young jazz musicians have to deal with and uh, hopefully you'll get some insight uh, or at least some thoughts uh, on how I would think about that moving forward so thanks for being here thanks for listening to the podcast if you're not subscribed please do that uh, and if you're not subscribed on YouTube go ahead and go go over to YouTube and uh, make sure you're make sure you're subscribed there because that's where uh, a lot of these episodes come out first uh, but if you enjoy the audio versions, leave us a review. Let me know what you're enjoying and uh, what you might like to see in the future here on the podcast. So thanks to, for being here, and uh, we'll catch you in the next episode. Of course, uh, if you haven't been following, if you haven't seen yet, we've got the Jazz Trombone Day, the UNT Conselmer Jazz Trombone Day. That's happening on November 20th. But more importantly is that the submissions are open for the competition. So 30 and under competition for the UNT Conselmer Jazz Trombone Competition. And so those are due right now. That's due September 1st. So we got a couple weeks to go here, but it's time to get moving on these things uh, because we have to have time to get the finalists here for the final round, which is on November 20th. And so we need to get moving. So if that's you and you want to apply, I hope you will, uh, you can find all that information on my website, nickfinzermusic.com. But the submissions are open and we would love to hear from you. So please don't delay. And it's totally free. So if you're a jastromonist, there's no reason not to apply unless you're 31 or older. Uh, or you have a record deal already, which is probably not you because there's not too many jazz remote players with a record deal uh, at this moment. So we hope to hear from you. Prizes, that's what everybody wants to know, of course. First place prize is going to get a King Jazz Ramon of their choosing. Second prize is going to get a Butler Trombone's custom carbon fiber slide. And we are working on a third place prize. Uh, all three will get a scholarship to UNT if they want to come and study here. Uh, which leads me to the next announcement, which is on September 1st, the same day that our the submissions are due, also uh, will be open for uh, submissions for admission to UNT in 22, fall of 22. It's really exciting because every other year I get to search for a new TA, and so that year is this year. So if you're looking for uh, a place to come do your master's or a doctorate and looking for a TA or a TF position, while doing so, doing a bunch of teaching, being involved with the YouTubes, being involved uh, with composition and arranging, with just all kinds of things, teaching lessons, um, and just helping to run the studio, then we're looking for you. All that information is also on my website, nickfinzermusic.com, so if you want to check that out. On September 1st, I'll be posting a video that kind of walks through exactly what we need, but all that stuff opens on September 1st. So, two things. Jazz Trombone Day competition open now until September 1st, and then on September 1st, we have the... Uh, application period opening up for fall of 22. So if that's you, we want to hear from you, especially if you want to be or interested in being a TA or TF at UNT. So send me an email, get in touch, send me a DM on Instagram, whatever, and we'll get back to you and get you that information that you're looking for. And uh, hopefully we can see you at UNT. So, and then my last announcement before we get into the questions is about Get To It. So Get To It is the new book, new duet book, and the Get To It Challenge is on now 
which is, of course, playing on one of the duets with me posting it, basically. So I, I uh, have a YouTube video just says Get To It Challenge, and it has all the links to all of the um, submission instructions and to download the track, to download the PDF, all of that stuff so you can play along. So I hope you'll consider that. And so the prizes for that is obviously you're going to get a hard copy of the book. We'll send you a hard copy of Get To It, the new duet book. And after that, we will also we'll have a 30-minute Zoom lesson with me as part of that. So the Get To It Challenge. So it's op that's open until next Wednesday. The balance between learning from slash mimicking the masters while developing your own sound. I kind of think that the developing of your own sound is a culmination of experience rather than really setting out to like be unique or be cultivate your own sound because I think that it happens pretty naturally um, through all of the things that you like and all of the things that you're drawn to, all the things that you are um, choosing over time, you know, like certain vocabulary that you choose to transcribe, certain solos you choose to transcribe, the things that you listen to on a regular basis. All of that stuff adds up to your unique sound and your unique approach to the instrument and to the music. You don't have to do that much at first to really um, get inside of that approach, you know, to find your own approach. Later, so basically, you know, that's the difference to me between studying as an undergrad, studying <clears throat> as a master student or DMA student. It's like, as an undergrad, you're focusing on getting all the basics together, the fundamentals together, learning bebop vocabulary, learning JJ, Curtis, Slide, all of these cats. And then from there, it's like, okay, so what do we do with that information, right? And once you do something with that information, that's what we're um, really um, finding a voice, your voice, right? And the further you go along, the more you'll start to think about your voice and you'll figure out things that you're really strong at, things that you're weak at, things you can double down on, meaning like things that you're good at that you wanna make sure that like you cultivate or things that you're weak at that you wanna make sure you get better at. And that is what kind of defines the direction of your sound. And then from there, you can start to make choices to enhance uh, your sound and enhance your approach. So if that means learning about different uh, harmonic approaches or checking out Slonimsky or checking out classical composers and getting more into composition and all of that stuff. It all helps to develop you as a musical personality. You can never ever um, be done with the mimicking part. You know, you're I'm always trying to play better, trying to play more like JJ, Slide, Curtis, my heroes, you know, like, and I know that I'm not going to sound like them at the end of the day, but I'm going to try. You know, I'm going to try my best. My balance for that question is at first, the first, you know, in co college years, first four years, undergrad, you're going to be focused on mimic. And then getting into your senior year, getting into the scene, starting to play gigs, getting experience, going back to school for your master's. And then once you're doing your master's, that's when you can start to think about, all right, what am I going to really do uh, with this information? How am I going to play? What's my musical personality? All that sort of thing is like a later thing. I always think about it as craftsman versus artist. Undergrads, you got to be a great craftsman. And then as a master's student, you can be more focused on your artistry. It's how to play vibrato. Concerts such symphonic players have a really different sound to me than jazz players. Is it the vibrato being used more in jazz? Let's go big picture to small picture. So in the macro view, the difference between playing trombone in a classical setting versus jazz setting is no different. You have to play with good time, good feel, good sound, good intonation. All that stuff, all that technical stuff is the same, right? What is different is the articulation, the flow of the music, the flow of the eighth notes, and the concept. The, the musical concept is totally different. 
So then when we're talking about something micro like vibrato, it's going to be very different. So when I think about it, there's a, there's many different ways people play vibrato in jazz. My favorite is like Curtis and JJ. Who, JJ has a very vocal way of playing where like his vibrato is wide and slow and then it speeds up. It speeds up as the note trails off and Curtis has a similar kind of way of doing it. And then I believe I read somewhere or heard an interview somewhere where he was talking about trying to imitate Sarah Vaughn. It's beautiful the way that it happens and it's like it's it has a relationship to the tempo and and a relationship to the song and just so it's like wide and slow and then it gets fast. That's something that like when you're transcribing we're talking about mimicking the great players like that's the deeper level right a lot of people get stuck on the on the note level like what notes am i supposed to play how do i play these you know how do what notes is the good notes or like what are the rhythms but that's only the surface level what you really are trying to get out of the out of a transcription is like yeah those are the notes but how are they being played so i've talked about this a lot how are they being played how where's the accents what's the flow feel like what are the important notes? What's the phrasing, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff goes into the how, you know. It's not just what notes are being played, but how the notes are being played as well. And um, so vibrato is a big part of that. So vibrato is one part, Gigi. Uh, it's not the main difference. The main difference to me is the sound concept and articulation concept, where in a jazz, jazz player, it's more about a flow, a flow of articulations. As in, and in symphonic music, it has more of kind of a top-down, ta 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 like, even think about excerpts, you know, like da da di da 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 da, you know, the Mozart thing. It has like a top-down approach, whereas like with jazz, it's more of a flow. And so there's other things you can do to change the way you play a little bit. Maybe your slide grip is a little bit different to try to get a little bit more flow, a little bit more relaxation potentially into your music. What's a YouTube video that you keep coming back to? I'll tell you one. One that I keep coming back to that always freaks me out every time I hear it was the first video where I discovered Elliot Mason. So there's a uh, video of him playing What Is This Thing Called Love? That the resolution is super low, super early YouTube days. Uh, from with Yannick Wisdala, the bassist, electric, electric bassist. Yeah, he plays What Is This Thing Called Love? And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's like, that freaks me out every time I hear it. So how do you deal with frustration when something doesn't go your way on a gig? You know, a question to ask yourself, you know, that helps you be in the music a little bit more. What does the music need right now? And I pose that to myself, you know, so sometimes if I'm not playing well or somebody else is being a drag or something, you know, what does the music need? Not what do I need, you know, because it doesn't really matter what I need uh, if you're trying to serve the music, if the music is the number one thing on your priority list. So maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I mean, that's kind of up to you, you know, how and how you perceive the music. I think putting the music first makes it for a more interesting musical experience. I'm ask, I ask myself that question and then how can I participate in that? And usually whatever frustration there is, is uh, going to go to go by the wayside, you know, because it's not about you at that point. It's about the music. It's not about you. And you're able to kind of kind of get yourself out of that mindset, I would hope. What books do you use for sight reading? I use no books for sight reading. Read music, real music, as much as you can. Find charts. There's unlimited charts, unlimited transcriptions you can download from the Internet. There's so much stuff. Just read, 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 read. And then hold yourself to a high 
standard. This is the part that's missing. You can read, read, read and make mistakes over and over and over again, or you can say, I'm gonna read my butt off and I am going to actually be a good reader. And so when I say good, what does it mean to be a good reader to me is playing it perfectly the first time. Just that's where I hold myself to the standard. It has to be right the first time or it's wrong. There is, it's pretty black and white really. It's a yes or no, pass, fail. Did you play it right or did you play it wrong? That's the standard that I hold myself to and I started holding myself to it my probably second year of undergrad. I was like, you know what? I'm done with being a bad sight reader. I'm just gonna play everything correct. Done, end of story. <laughs> you know, and when you make a decision like, I'm going to be a good reader, what are the things that a good reader does? Well, they read all the time. They play it correctly. You know, they figure out a way to maybe disguise their mistakes. They figure out ways to recognize like patterns, looking ahead, knowing the rhythms. Like the only time that I really get tripped up and I'm not trying to like blow smoke or like say that I'm the best sight reader because I'm not the best sight reader. I think I'm pretty good at it recently way out of practice because of everything but the only time i really will get tripped up is if somebody if a part is copied badly or if it has really weird um really weird like nonsensical accidentals sometimes composing and arranging and transcribing is all part of like recognizing those rhythms you know read every day no books read music read transcriptions read stuff that's too hard but hold yourself to that high standard. Like, don't just go through it and be like, oh, I sucked at that. Like, go and read it read it again until it's correct. Where's a place you would love to tour in a post-pandemic world? Um, I've been itching to get back to two places. Uh, one is Argentina. I've been trying to get back to the, the Trombonanza Festival for like, for the last five years, and it hasn't happened. And then also Australia. Those are two places that I'm trying to get back to. But in terms of new places, I still haven't been to Japan. So Japan is number one on my list of new places to get to, especially um, to play music. Uh, and they have some great clubs there. And yeah, I'd also love to go to South Africa. I'd love to hear you talk about what your motivation was for starting the Institute for Creative Music. So when I was an undergrad at Eastman, I decided, well, I had a band, first of all, with my roommate. And we played, it was a, like a funk fusion kind of band. And we played original hard uh like fusion stuff like think chicory electric band plus mahavishnu orchestra kind of plus a little bit of parliament funkadelic so kind of in that zone and we thought we could you know at the same time with that friend i had another friend named chris teal who's a great drummer we had many experiences as students that left a lot to be desired uh, regarding um educational pedagogy within jazz and that there were some people out there that they would just do the classic thing where you show up and say like ask me questions i'm awesome but it was always like why don't people have a specific way of teaching jazz that is actually helpful and there's a lot of um, materials out there but none of them actually like help you internalize the music so we tried to take those two things and put them together and we created a, like a curriculum uh and some workshops and so we tested them out by going to arizona uh, just with this band. My parents are in Arizona, so we went to a bunch of schools and did stuff. And then, so once we got back from that, that was in like 2008 and 2009. And then we started, uh, we, we went to Montana. I forget exactly the sequence of events, but uh, once we also, when I finished school in 2010, 2009, so then 2010, we talked about how different models, so I was talking with Chris, different business models for a group, you know, and 
one thing that happens a lot in the classical world that doesn't happen so much in the jazz world but is happening more is that people will incorporate their their band their group their chamber ensemble as a nonprofit entity and so then they can apply for grants as that entity they can do they can like some schools don't want to pay a person they want to pay a corporation so there's there were some benefits uh, business wise to being a nonprofit and so we read a bunch of information about nonprofits and then decided um, we wanted to do something that would kind of create a combination of an outlet for performance and also an approach to improvisation. So the Institute for Creative Music was started in 2011 by Chris and I, and we've gone to Montana. We've done camps in Rochester. He moved to Arkansas. So we did some camps in Arkansas. We've gone to Montana a bunch of times. Uh, we've gone to Washington, Arizona, and so essentially, it's taking the idea of learning, lang of a language learning process, uh, and applying it to jazz. So we do everything by ear. There's no music. Uh, we do impro improvisation workshops with groups of all levels of all experiences. So sometimes we'll like go work with the orchestra or go work with the choir, and we have some pieces that are maybe a combination of like it's not straight ahead jazz, right? It's like it's improvisational music. That's why it's called the Institute for Creative Music and not like jazz this or jazz that. And so what we do is jazz influence, but it's not just that. And it helps us to connect with more students. So uh, like I said, we've, we do it with the orchestra, the choir, the band, all that stuff, and get them doing these improvisation pieces with some like contemporary classical elements, with some jazz elements, with some crossover elements. It's kind of a lot of different things. So we started it based on those, those kind of experiences and then we wanted to be able to apply for grants and we wanted to kind of get into that world and see like can we function here can we build something and at this point so this year is the the tenth year in the last five about halfway through the last ten years we started doing like a performance side of things and so we added in the institute for creative music collective kind of inspired in part by like this the sf jazz collective or something like that and so we would pick a composer we picked like saint vincent we picked prince and we picked Bjork, like different kind of pop artists, more mainstream artists, and kind of put our own spin on their music for a while. And we're trying to get back into doing some of that stuff. Obviously, the pandemic has kind of changed things and uh, put a pause on a lot of things. But um, so that's kind of why we started it was to have access to grants, to have access to like the, the benefits of having a nonprofit and just being able to kind of combine and create a specific kind of curriculum. So that the thing that has been happening in conjunction with all that is we have a series of courses we're actually getting ready to re-release them all uh, called creative jazz fundamentals it's an alternative approach to learning jazz right from the beginning so uh, it involves no written music it's all by ear it's courses with play-alongs and all this kind of stuff and um, so it's super detailed but it's like i've talked about uh, with chris about this but it's the hard way you know like you can, learning music with sheet music is the easy way because you're just recognizing the dots and you just play the dots, right? But what we're talking about is ear training. It's learning to play your instrument. It's learning to improvise. It's listening. It's all of those things. So it takes longer, you know, but um, we've done it with a lot of students in a lot of places and we, I know that the method is effective, but it's difficult for people to buy in because it's not so much, ba it's based on the process. It's not so much based on the result. So especially for educators, um, it's hard. It's easier for them to show this hard piece that they've been working on that they got a score on, you know. But like our whole thing is like the development of the process, learning, 
how to learn, learning how to learn, you know, learning how to learn jazz, learning how to play jazz, all of that kind of stuff. So have you ever had any interesting, unexpected encounters with a musician? I mean, yes. I mean, in New York, this happens all the time, right? Like you run into people randomly all the time. So I, one unexpected, I was hanging out with Ryan Keverly. We were on the train going to some, coming from somewhere. And we ran into um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, the guy that wrote Hamilton. And I didn't even know who he was. And, and we didn't, nobody, like, Ryan didn't say who he was. He was just like, hey, what's up, and blah, blah, and he introduced me, and you know, this kind of thing. And so, um, I, you know, he's pretty well known now, but at the time I was like, well, who's this guy, you know? And so it's kind of funny when you realize, oh, that was a, someone that would be worth knowing, but I was just like, who is, I don't know who this guy is. Oh, nice to meet you, it was cool. Uh, but there's one. After recording a record, what are the next steps to get your music out there? Well, you got to mix it. You got to master it. That's that. You got to get artwork together. Then you got to come up with a promotion plan, and kind of what makes sense for you there. Um, if you're going to shop it around to labels, you need to send it out to the, those people. If you're going to do it on your own, you need to figure out what distribution strategy you're going to use. Uh, if you're going to hire a publicist, if you're not going to hire a publicist, if you're going to print CDs or not print CDs, um, it really depends on how much your budget is and what your goals are with the project. If it's just to have a document, just have something, you know then maybe don't spend a whole bunch of money uh, trying to pub publicize it. Just get it on your website, sell it to your friends and family, use it for getting gigs. That's one type of project. And the other type of project is like, this is my first project, and I'm going to get it out there as a leader. And that was going to require investing $1,000 into printing CDs, three to $5,000 on publicity, all that kind of stuff. So you got to decide basically what your budget is and kind of what you're trying to do with the project, what the goals are, and kind of work backwards from there. You can obviously use something like CD Baby. You can get stuff out there with DistroKid, you know, different things. Uh, what's the other one called? TuneCore. So you got to finish the music first. That's the first thing I would do. And my number one thing is to tell you is that no matter what you do, don't try to go too fast. Um, let the process take, take its course. For example, if you sent it to me today uh, to put on Outside in Music, for example, we would say we would be looking at March as the soonest of 22. So um, March or April even, you know, we want to have a lot of time to make sure everything happens correctly uh, and that you have time to account for mistakes and all that stuff. And uh, things don't get released in December or early January or late November because things are just so crowded. Everybody's so busy with the holiday season, end of the year and all that. So I've been dealing with frustration after having an audition. Have you tried to deal with your ego getting in the way of performing your best? I think that just means you care. I don't think you can get through a life in this industry with taking auditions and all of that kind of stuff without having those frustrations, without having those um, things. The most important, the thing that I tell my students is like, it doesn't really matter. Like the audition is just a snapshot of you on a day. Like you're not gonna suddenly get better a week before. Like you can't shed for just the audition in the, in a, in the week leading up to it. You know, your audition is a, look into your your essential musicianship you know if you haven't been for example we just did lab band auditions here at unt the last two days there's three components to our audition for example um, there's an improvisation component where you play a tune there's a sight reading part and there's a prepared piece part so if you if you're weak in one of those areas you know that you need to work on that for next time i i think that it's important to remember that as an educator myself i can say that even when you make a mistake, I learn more about your playing than if you play it correctly necessarily. Like playing it correctly is one thing and knowing that you can sight read well 
is is one like one specific skill, but it doesn't really define the audition. I've told this story before, but like when I auditioned for Juilliard, I was convinced that I had screwed it up and that I would never get in. Uh, you know, like I was unbelievably convinced that I had effed up my whole life. <laughs> you know, like I was so frustrated. And so I have dealt with this 100%. I walked two miles back to my hotel in the rain uh, because I was so pissed about what I had played, you know, or whatever. I just don't think we have, we can't as the auditioner in our state of like fear and anxiety and stress have an accurate look at like what, what it sounded like. And if that, it's not a checkbox, at least not for me. Maybe for some people it's like a checkbox, like you did this or you didn't do that. You did this, or you didn't do that. Okay. For me, it's like it's looking at the big picture of everything to determine like your placement or like this, what the results are of the audition, whether it's to get into a program or a placement in an ensemble or whatever. It's like it's not just about yes or no. It's not black and white. It's like, well, these people would play well together or this person would fit well in this ensemble. This person would fit in this program or would not fit in this program based on these other outside factors or like that person seems like they're working really hard. I want to give them a a leg up, you know, you know, there's a lot of factors. So just trying to remember that it's like, it is what it is. You can't change it. You can't go back. You can only prepare better in the future. And it doesn't really matter. You know, that's, those are the things that I say, you know, to my students specifically, like, it doesn't matter. Like, however you play is, is how you play, you know, and if you still haven't worked on sight reading, you're still going to suck at sight reading. Favorite seasonal gigs to play Easter, Christmas, Oktoberfest, or Valentine's Day. Oh, easily Oktoberfest, if that's included. I didn't see that at first. Oktoberfest is super fun. I used to go to Canada to play um, Oktoberfest in Kitchener, Waterloo, which was always a lot of fun. I don't really like playing Easter gigs or Christmas gigs. I'd rather definitely rather do Oktoberfest. And Valentine's Day doesn't really have like a themed thing. You just play like love songs or something. I don't know. How can you help your band members step up to perform better than they think? So I think if you set them up for success, that means like writing music where they will excel, not like writing with your own bl blinders on if your band is already set, you know, like if you're like, oh, these are the cats I'm gonna call. Okay, what are they best at? How can you write music that features them? That's like the Ellington methodology. Like, okay, Lawrence Brown, he's so good at all these things. What can I write to make him sound great? You know, that's what a great composer that has a band like that can do that. And, and whether it's a small group or a big band, it doesn't really matter. It, it's uh, it's being aware of your ensemble and setting them up for success, you know, because um, everyone's going to play it a little bit differently. So it's important to remember that, like, not everybody's going to play it the same. And just having that expectation, just like I don't really it's not like a talked about thing, but you just like, you know, you expect them to do their best. And if they don't, you call somebody else. Do you agree with the idea that people should only pursue a performing career if they can't see themselves doing anything else? This is a complicated question. I think when I heard people say this, I was not able to process what they actually mean. Building a life as a musician, specifically as a performing musician, is hard. The value that's placed on someone that only performs is difficult, especially on trombone. If you only wanna play trombone, especially if it's only playing jazz, right? Like, so if we're, narrow, we're narrowing ourselves down again and again and again and again, it gets harder and harder and harder to only perform. So you'll notice that myself, I don't only perform, teach at UNT. I have a record label. I am a side person. I play with other people. I have my own band. 
you know, I do all of those different things. If I could have my way, could I, would I love to only perform and like be like my heroes, like Steve Davis or Wycliffe Gordon or Steve Turay and play with my heroes? Well, yeah, of course I would. But the, the economic and like industry reality is something different at this moment in 2021. It is not 1963 or 1959. You know, jazz is not supported in the way that it once was by the public. So being aware of what that means, you know, and like you're making trade-offs. Like everything, every decision you make is always a trade-off. And if you're saying that you're only going to go into performance because you think you're only going to perform, you're just, you're just lying to yourself. You're going to have to do more things. Now, some people don't. And a lot of that has to do with like the lifestyle that they're okay with, relationships that they have, the things that are important to them in terms of their life. You know, I've been thinking about it a lot, honestly, and I don't know that I have a good answer for you. To pursue a performing career, I think is essential. Um, because if you don't hold yourself to the standard of being a performer and wanting to be a great performer, I don't necessarily see you being as good of an educator as if you also could do that. There are plenty of amazing pedagogues of the trombone, of, of music, but it's only gonna enhance your ability to teach if you are also a good performer. Now there's also plenty of good performers that are not good educators. Um, not singling anybody out, but like teaching is a different skill than performing, right? So I don't think it's necessarily the case that you would say you should not pursue a performance degree if you, if you wanna do anything else. I think if you wanna play your instrument at a high level, really high level you feel like you want to be an artist and like be you know commit to that and you are committed to it you, that's the thing you have to be committed to it and you have to be a type of person that'll figure out stuff as you go if you're okay with like a bohemian lifestyle like not making a lot of money all that kind of stuff you can just play in many cities you can you just play and you can make good money in a lot of cities just playing but I think most people do a lot of different things. So to, to just say it's yes or no is very um, misleading to reality. I think one thing that I like to do is look at the people that I look up to, but that also play my instrument so that I have like a little bit of an idea of like, is this actually realistic? You know, like, what are they doing? Who are your heroes? Who are you looking up to? That's maybe five to 10 years older. What are they doing? There's probably a reason they're doing it, you know? both because maybe they're good at it, they want to do it, and also there could be other factors that like go into that decision of you know, life, you know, life decisions and things they wanna do and uh, relationships they wanna have and uh, legacy they wanna leave behind. Or like, there's many, many different reasons why people make a decision uh, outside of just wanting to play, you know? And I saw this from some different people recently, you know, there's seasons in your life, you know, like you, you don't have to do the same thing forever. I think if you are committed to your craft and want to get really good at it, you should be a performance major because the more you dilute yourself with many different things, the less focus you're going to have. So I have two performance degrees, but I've always taught. What do you tell your students about trying to promote themselves when they're unsure about how to present their product? Well, it really depends on what it is. What I tell my artists for Outside in Music is that most people don't see what you're posting. Most people don't see that email. Most people don't see that post. They don't see that video. Uh, it's only 10% that see it. So if you've got 1,000 followers, only 100 people are going to see it. So you've got to tell it. Tell the story of the thing you're trying to get across in many different ways across many different instances. A few people will see all of it and might be annoyed. But you know what? 
you're going to have to annoy those people because you got to let the other people know because some people interact better when it's a it's an email in text form or some people want to be reached out to directly like they want that they want you to call them and tell them about it or they want a text some people want an email they don't want to be bothered some people want to see it organically uh, in their feed some people will react to an advertising an advertisement like a, a social media ad like a facebook ad or instagram some people better with listening on a podcast some people are better better with um, videos some people are better with pictures only you know so all those different things so we t i always tell the artists tell the story of the album or the product as many different ways as you can as many times as you can and yeah maybe it'll seem a little pushy so then you gotta blend that in with other content that isn't asking and promoting so if you're going to post every day for t 10 days about one of your posts then you want to make sure the net that to surround those you're going to do at least 10 posts that aren't about that that they're about something else and i struggle to keep up with that myself you know but just keep telling people about what you're trying to do because most people don't know because they're so everyone's wrapped up in their own thing you know they're wrapped up in their own life they're wrapped up in their own experience they're wrapped up in their own problems etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh, just don't be afraid to tell people about what you're up to thanks for tuning in um September 1st is the deadline for the UNT Colin Selmer Jazz Trombone Competition open to people around the world, 30 and under. We'd love to have you for the final round, so send in your competition recording. If you are looking for a TA or TF spot, a teaching assistant position, I might have one for you next year here at UNT. Uh, so if that's you, well, let's get in touch, let's talk. September 1 is also the opening of applications for the fall 22 cycle. So uh, I'll be posting a video soon with all the details. They're the same, but an updated video with all the details about auditions coming up and lots more about Jazz Trombone Day coming uh, over the next couple of days, couple of weeks. So um, have a fantastic rest of your weekend and we'll catch you real soon.